You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Take your scripture and turn uh, to the book of Mark again, uh, chapter 10, verse 32, a larger part of the passage. And um, before I get there, as we read into that, can we show the picture I've got up here? Um, here it is. I don't know if you can, can you see that? You can see that. Where's Weston? Weston, there he is. Yep. Weston drew this last week, and uh, I think you've got Jesus, and then Weston, it was the rich man, right, that was talking to him, and then he went away sad and disheartened because he had many possessions. And so Weston caught the, caught the gist of that passage and what was going on. So thank you for doing that. Uh, we are today moving towards a passage in which uh, greatness is defined. Jesus' definition of greatness, it's radically different than most of the world's and even even believers' definition of greatness. So here's the fact. Jesus not only is going to give a definition of what it means to be great, but he's a living, breathing example. And for the believer, he is the Lord whose leadership and greatness through to define and shape our lives through what our Savior does here. So we're going to look at that in a few sections here and uh, see Christ and his great example uh, all the way to what we've been singing about already this morning so i pick up in mark ten thirty two, where it says and they were on the road going up to jerusalem and jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid and taking the 12 again he began to tell them what was to happen to him saying see We are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that as we take this time to understand your great work on the cross, your great suffering as the servant, that you give us an understanding beyond what we have, that your spirit would work amongst us. And Lord, guide, uh, guide your word, Lord. May any words that I have that are not true to your word be forgotten, but may your glory shine bright here and what we see of Jesus, and then our really our attitude, our servanthood flowing out of that. And so we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Okay, is that better? All right, you won't hear me yelling through the whole service. That's okay. All right. We'll keep going. Verses 32, what I just read, we're going to read more. We're not stopping there. But I think 
they form the context for this conversation of Jesus that's going to happen that we're going to look into briefly here in, in just a little bit. Because James and John are going to be approaching Jesus with a question. You know, we want to sit right hand, left hand of you. And I think this passage, it's familiar. You've heard it before. Uh, it's going to help us. And there's a theme here, I think, that ought to really be ringing in our ears as we read on to the next passage. That's why we're kind of combining 32 through 34 together with, with what's to come in 35 through the end of verse 45. But we're on the road with Jesus here. We find Jesus and his followers, verse 32, they're on the road to Jerusalem. Twice spoken of, they're going to Jerusalem. Some are in amazement, some are in fear, and yet Jesus is ahead of them all. Uh, one commentary said he's not a reluctant leader. He's out in front of them, leading them to where? We, we know what's going on. He's telling them what's going to be happening. And Jesus calls the 12, and then he lays out for the third time for us, at least in this, I, there's really maybe four you could say, but really three of these predictions of his suffering, his death, his resurrection. We've already seen two as we've traveled through Mark. Here's the third one. And what awaits the Son of Man in Jerusalem? He talks about himself as the Son of Man. Verse 33, he's talking to his disciples. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered. You might remember the Old Testament speaking of the Son of Man. Daniel, you can write this down. Is Daniel chapter 7, really in verses, I think it's verse 14 there, that that this one... Uh, speaks of a son of man Daniel saw in a vision says he was the son of man he was given dominion now listen for the the ruling the leaders the kingly passage here from the old testament he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples nations and languages should serve him an everlasting dominion and a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. These are kingdom-type languages. And now here, the Son of Man is walking among His people, the people. But though Jesus had been given all these things, He's been given dominion, all these things, verse 33 through 34 that we just read, they lay out really what this kingdom is not, at least from an earthly vantage point. There's not a glorious and a majestic crowning. There will be a crowning, right? but it's going to be of thorns. It's not maybe the majestic crowning we would think of as someone having dominion in this, this ruling king. It's one of humiliation. It's going to involve horrendous suffering and death and yet resurrection. I think there's no better way to get a context here of what Jesus just mentioned in these short verses than going forward in Mark. We're kind of skipping ahead in the book a little bit just to see the context of what Jesus is talking about. And I want to read to you some from the account of Jesus. I think it's fitting as we approach. We've been talking about Easter some this morning. As we approach this season of Easter, it's all right to read it over and over again. But I think what we're going to read in Mark here gives just life to what Jesus... We can just read over these two verses rather quickly, right? They will mock him, spit on him, flog him. What's going on? What? Why this and then what we're going to see later? So um, turn with me to Mark 14. We're going to keep it easy. We're just going to stay in Mark. I'm going to be reading qu quite a bit of the passage. I'm not going to be commenting on, on very much of it, but I just want to get you 
thinking of this context before we dive into verse 35. What is Jesus all about? What is his path? What's the ultimate? Where is he going? So Mark 14, uh, find verse 53. We're going to pick up there. Um, they've, just, they've arrested Jesus, and Mark 14, 53 kind of picks up the story. We're, we're in that, that passion, the Passion Week, uh, the Easter season. Think of that. As we, as we hear, what does this mean that Jesus would be condemned, delivered, mocked, spit upon, flogged? Here we go, verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. Ready? Here's our word again. You and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And just as predicted back in our passage, they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him. And to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Jump forward down to chapter 15, verse 1. Here again, this is the context that Jesus will be speaking to the disciples. Here it continues. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests, chapter 15, 1, chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. He's delivered. Verse 2, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? 
But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. That word scourge there, uh, one commentary from the ESV Study Bible says this, Roman flogging was a horrifically cruel punishment. Those condemned to it were tied to a post and beaten with a leather whip that was interwoven with pieces of bone and metal which tore through the skin and tissue, often exposing bones and intestines. In many cases, the flogging itself was fatal. The Romans scourged Jesus nearly to death so that he would not remain alive on the cross after sundown. We continue just a bit more. Mark 15, go to verse 21. We come to the cross, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscriptions of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And then 33, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. That's spoken to most of what we read in Mark 10, but let me just add verse 6 of chapter 16, where the angel speaks to Mary, the Marys that had gone to visit Jesus in the tomb. And yet he says this, he said to them, do not be alarmed, three days later, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. It's in this context, and, and I know Jesus has kind of done it in a short paragraph worth that he's predicted this. And I appreciate you just reading along with me to get a context of back in Mark 10 of James and John approaching Jesus. So we have all that. We just kind of read it. We're thinking of this scourging and the mocking and the beating. And James and John, seemingly unaware of what awaits Jesus, they begin to speak 
of greatness, position, and authority. Now look at verse 35. So we're back in Mark 10, verse 35 through 37. I'll read for us here. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Despite what Jesus has taught them about losing one's life for the sake of Jesus, the first who ought to be last, Jesus has already talked to them about this, talked about being a servant of all. It would seem these two, James and John, have learned very little about humility. They're asking Jesus, verse 37, grant us, give to us, might be the word there, give to us a place of standing, a place of prominence with, G- with yourself in glory. I want you to pay attention to the word grant. If you're into underlining your Bible, you could maybe underline that word. If not, just remember that word grant. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. But that's what they're wanting, grant us. We want to be on your right and your left. R.T. France says this about this, what they're asking. He says, to speak of sitting rather than reclining as at a banquet on the right or left of someone implies a royal throne with the places of highest honor on either side. Unlike the scribes or the Pharisees, who we read about later, but who already at this point in Mark, they've blasphemed Jesus, they've sought to destroy him, So that's one set of characters in Mark. Yes, they're out to destroy. There's these other characters, the disciples, the followers that come along. They realize his kingship. I think rightly they're saying we want to sit right and left. But they wrongly envision his reign. I don't think they grasp the suffering that he's going to endure. And then Jesus asks them about this by the use of the image of the cup and baptisms. Look at verse 38. Jesus says to them, said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which, uh, with which I am baptized? We might ask, what does Jesus mean here by these symbols, cup and baptism? These come right in the middle here. What's he mean by this? For the cup, biblically speaking, it can be a symbol of blessing, but it's also a symbol of God's judgment against sin. Isaiah 51.17 speaks of a cup of God's wrath. So we're asking, what is this cup baptism type language Jesus is using here? Well, Old Testament, cup of God's wrath. Other commentators think that's maybe... Figuratively, the, the cup of wrath is the more dominant theme of when, when cup is mentioned. Well, that's helpful, but also Mark 14.36. So we're just paging back and forth. 14.36, if you want to look at that. Remember Jesus is praying in the garden before all of what we just read, the long section we read. He's praying. I think it helps us understand. Um, 14.36, he's praying in the garden. He says this, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. What does he say? Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. 
There is to Jesus going to be this cup of suffering. The cup, the drink of the cross where the blood was shed, where He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 53.12, speaking of Jesus to come, speaking of the servant of God, says this, that He, and so we see it fulfilled in Jesus, He poured out His soul. Cup language? He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The cup Christ drank was the wrath of God. It's the cup we deserve to drink. The wages of sin is death. It's our cup, and he drinks this cup. One resource says this. Because Jesus drinks the cup of death, he can offer his followers the cup of the new covenant. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way, but Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath that we might drink the cup of grace and forgiveness and reconciliation with our God. He's doing this for us. What we just read about in his life is a drinking of this cup, the wrath, the suffering in place of sinners, not even people that are worthy to die for sinners. He's done this. As for the baptism, if you're in Mark 14, if you're moving along with us to different places, head over just to Romans, Romans 6, 1 through 4. Romans chapter 6, 1 through 4. As we think about, maybe we understand what Jesus is meaning by James, John, can you drink from this cup? But what about this baptism? It says this in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So Paul's talking to believers here. Verse 2, by no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And then verse 4, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus had, There is this baptism of death, burial, resurrection. And we understand it symbolized in the believer's baptism. That's symbology. But here, Jesus would face not only the cup of wrath, but this baptism of death, burial, and yet He says He will rise again. And so back to Mark 10. And James and John reply. Okay, this is still on. It got loud on me all of a sudden. I'm just checking. All right. Back to James and now. Now, they reply, verse 39. We're back in 39, Mark 10. Here's their reply through 40. They said to him, so Jesus says, can you? Can you drink this cup? You can be baptized with this. They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. There would, in fact, be a cup of suffering that these two, James and John, would endure. 
Acts 12, we're not going to go there, but it records that James, the very James here, the brother of John, was killed by the sword. He did face a cup of persecution and suffering for walking with Christ. John, John here that wrote the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelation also found himself in the book of Revelation as he's writing. He's in exile on the island of Patmos. One commentator, James Edwards, says this. He says, Jesus invests the metaphors. So he's talking about cup and baptism with a slightly different sense when he uses them of the disciples. So they're not, they're used. Jesus is saying, can you drink? And and they're saying, yeah. And he says, well, you will. It's not in the same way that he will, but there is a sense in which they will. Edwards says this, with reference to the, to the disciples, the same imagery refers to the persecutions that they will reap as a consequence of following him. Do you remember last week just reading in that section where uh, uh, those who leave father, mother, brother, sister, right, they'll receive a hundredfold uh, in this life, houses, lands, that sort of thing, and with persecutions. I think that's the idea of the cup, the baptism that they would endure. But the last part, uh, actually just verse 40 there, Jesus does say to sit at my right hand or my left. It's not mine to grant. It's, it's for those for whom it has been prepared. It reminds us again of the eternal plan of God and what He's prepared, even the, even the seating of those next to Jesus. It's interesting, uh, one of the commentators brought this out, but now that we've read over in 15 of Mark, who was at the right hand and left hand of Jesus in this book? In reality, it was the robbers. It was the guys on the cross next to Jesus that were actually on the right and the left of him, at least in an earthly sense. They were not the honored disciples, but robbers. God has prepared. He's prepared this. He's prepared a plan for all things. Well, verse 41, the disciples hear this. And uh, their reaction comes through. When the ten heard it, that is what James and John are asking this conversation, they began to be indignant at James and John. That indignant word, much to grieve. Probably quite angry to hear these guys and their positioning here. And James and John really thundered, if they're sons of thunder, into this one. They faced the condemnation of the others around them. But Jesus calls them in verse 42. He's going to call them to himself. And he takes what are self-centered, self-honoring desires in James and John, and he's going to use this setting to teach them true greatness. And it's the grace of God. They were asking, Lord, we want this. Jesus, in a sense, he's answering. He's, he's going to help them by graciously. He doesn't just say, no, you can't. That's not for you and moves on. But he uses even what we would see as wrong questioning to answer and to bring about what he wants to teach them and show them and ultimately his glory in all things. So look at verse uh, 42. Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. 
Jesus now gives a helpful illustration. It's one in which these disciples, they can instantly identify in their day, these rulers of the Gentiles and the way they lord it over and exercise authority. Just to note here, Jesus is not throwing out authority as if authority is all bad. What he is doing is he's looking closer at really the how, the, the, the ways of authority. He's putting it in its place. Alfred Edersheim writes of this. He says of the language here of these words, they express not ordinary dominion and authority, but a forcible and tyrannical exercise of it. So it's not those who rule or exercise authority that they're wrong to do so. It's the manner. It's the way. It's how they go about it and how they perform their authority. That's really what's being answered here. Those to whom authority has been granted, they can use it for passions of the flesh to promote themselves, or they can glorify God and serve others. So thus begins this idea of leadership where service is essential. There's a serving to it. And maybe in shorter terms, we've heard it a lot used, that idea of servant leadership. It's not throwing out leaders or authority, but it's saying, how do you lead? How is that authority worked out? So Jesus goes on with the teaching, verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. That is this domineering, this wrong use of authority. It shall not be so. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus lifts up the example of the Gentile rulers and then commands, it shall not be so among you. If you want to be great, if you want to be first, the way up is down. The way to greatness is humility and lowliness and a slave of all. Greatness is for servants. And being first means being a slave. Peter would go on to exhort the leaders of the church in this exercise. And he uses the same language in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. I'll just read it for you. It says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, there's the, the leadership, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering, and that's the word there, that not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. The idea of serving, and again, our flesh can get wrong in this as well, of going after, well, okay, the way to greatness then is to serve. So I'm going to serve in order to become great. I think, I think if we're going there, we're, we're, <laughs> we're missing the point. The serving is the glory of another, of God, for His glory that we would serve and emulate by our Savior's example. And so we come to verse 45. And I think really it's just the key verse to the book of Mark. And I'm going to encourage you to memorize this verse um, if you haven't already. And Jesus lays out by example what it means. The example par excellence. He's going to say, 
You want to know what this means? He's not just teaching to say, here's some things, go do it. He's going to live it out, as we've already seen in this, the broader context, right, of what he's going to do. Out of all people, he could, he would not have to go through this. He's the ruler, and yet he does, and so he's going to show us. So verse 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me read it again. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, think on this. Even the Son of Man, the the one who rightfully deserves all praise and honor, came not to be served, but to serve. If anyone deserved authority, the right to rule, it is Jesus. And yet he has a purpose, and that's laid out. A purpose to serve, a purpose to give his life as a ransom for many. Two thoughts on the words ransom and to give. First, ransom. What was a ransom? Again, R.T. France says this of ransom, quote, used mainly for a payment to secure release, whether from slavery or from capture. The verb, and then he goes on to say, occurs frequently in the Septuagint, or that's the Old Testament, for God's redemption of his people, not only from slavery in Egypt, but also from spiritual oppression. And it's used for Payments to preserve a life which is legally forfeit, including the firstborn, or subject to divine punishment. A payment to preserve a life subject to divine punishment. The purpose of Jesus coming. Mark 1.17 has already pointed this out, that Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners who are sick and in need of a physician. The healer and the ransom has come. His name is Jesus. And how did he do this? Cup of suffering, cup of wrath, a baptism of death, burial, to be raised again. Mocked, spit upon, flogged. To sum it up, he gave, as as the end of verse 45 says, he gave his life. That's the word I want you to see. Do you see that word? And to give his life, to give. You remember back verse 37? I think all, most of your versions in verse 37 are going to have grant. Maybe at least uh, the NASB, King James, you've got that. James and John say, grant us to sit. Same word there. The Greek word there is the same word at the bottom, to give. Same root anyway. Different form, but same, same root word of giving. In other... Another way of saying, James and John are saying, give us this. Give us this throne. We want this place of honor. Jesus will give something. It's not a throne. It's what? It's his life. He dies. It's not just, here, take part of my throne. He's going to give a life for sinners. It's the same word, same root there. There's just a contrast here. I think it's amazing about Jesus He doesn't come to his own creation demanding they serve him. But in fact, he serves them and he gives his life so that they might serve and worship him. He rescues them. He ransoms them out of the bondage. 
to sin, really. So a question for us as we think on these things, a couple, two questions. One is, have you come to Jesus? Do you know this ransom? Do you know this gift? Have you received this gift of pardon, the, the cup of the new covenant, this grace, this forgiveness, reconciliation? Not just so we can enjoy that, that we're clean, that we might, now we can worship our God above. And we can sing songs of praise because there's no shame. It's taken away in the cross. I'd encourage you, come. If you have not come to Jesus, repenting of sin, and by faith, putting your faith in the work of Jesus alone for salvation, to know Him, to receive this ransom gift, this serving that He came. My other question would, of course, be to ask, how is your serving going? There are different types of serving. I believe if I'm right, in tennis, there is a type of serving. The ball, right? Across the net. Uh, Serena Williams would serve a ball. Um, can you just picture that cut type of service? Wham! You know, across the net. It's just, boom, it's coming at you fast. There's a type of serving. Um, I'm not sure that's the serving here. That type of, in your faith, it's the serving of Jesus here. He didn't serve those who, who liked him. Who did he serve? He served enemies. Romans 5 talks about that. He served those lost in sin. It's easy for us to serve those that appreciate us. If we serve them it's, and they say thank you or there's a smile or at least they're not angry, we'll, we'll gladly serve them. It's a joy. It's those that would turn and say, this isn't very good or you did that wrong or you didn't. I don't appreciate that. That's where the service, and I think the Christ-like service begins for us. Serving those enemies, those against you. But again, our motivation for serving is Jesus. And we just got to say, I'm reminded this morning, 1 Peter 4 again, those who serve, serve in the strength God supplies. You say, I cannot serve that one person. I say, Lord, give me strength to serve because they're hard to serve. Or this situation is hard to serve in. We need His strength to be like Him. And guess what? He dwells within us by His Spirit to bring us along to grow in Him. So some practical encouragement for your week. Is there someone this week? Probably more than one and probably each of our lives that we have not served with grace like Christ would. We served Him because we had to. Maybe we thought it would benefit us. And we've had a crummy attitude serving them. Is there someone that you need to go before the Lord and say, I want to serve them like Jesus serves, like this giving of a life for somebody, like, like being a servant, last of all instead of first, a slave of all. These are foreign to our flesh. But thank God for His Holy Spirit that works through us for these things. And by way, again, of practical encouragement, I encourage you memorize this last verse of, of this section anyway, Mark 10.45. I've put it in your bulletin. If you didn't get a bulletin and there's some left there, cut it out and put it 
in a couple places. Put it in your car, wherever you're at, and begin to memorize this if you haven't. That would be one of those verses that just comes to your mind. And meditate for your own service. So as you're going out, maybe you think of that person to serve. You're meditating. Even the Son of Man. Okay, what, what did we learn about the Son of Man? That's right, He's got dominion. He's got a rule. Even He, He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Kingdom greatness is suffering and serving like Jesus. And I think the portrait of a disciple of Christ looks like a servant of all. There's a lot of other things. We want to study the Word and we want to, we want to memorize and we want to live for the Lord. And we want to do all these things. And yet, I think the portrait here of a disciple of Christ, again, it's a portrait of a slave, of a servant. How do most of the writers of the New Testament begin their books? Paul, a slave, servant, so on. They, they caught on. May we catch on to that as well. Let me pray for us. Father, I would just ask your help in our serving this week to one another. Lord, I pray our serving is not just to check it off, one more thing to do to live the Christian life, got to do this. Oh, Lord, we can miss it quite wide. Um, I just pray that you would work in each of us to serve as Christ has served the church who has given his life for us to be saved. And may we have that kind of servanthood in our lives. People would say, I, I, don't, I don't know how you're doing that. And may we say, I don't know either. It's God working in us. So I pray for your glory to be seen in our lives as we serve those that are hard to serve, who are not grateful, who maybe put us down in the process. And yet, Lord, you were delivered, you were mocked, you were spit upon, beaten to take the cup of wrath that we deserved in our sin on yourself that we might receive a cup of blessing and grace. May we show that grace to others. In Jesus' power, we pray in his name. Amen.